Do you ever notice when something is not quite right? Like, I don't know, a hallway with a balcony and a pillar that's right through it? Or a fire hydrant that is covered by a railing? Or this drain is working really well right now, right? Um, Or these amazing seats that you bought for the playoff game that you've so long wanted to go to, only to be right in front of a brick wall. I don't even know what to say about this one. (laughs) Well, as we continue our look into David's life this morning, we begin to see some things that just don't add up. In one sense, we see a rise to the throne that shows God's hand in leading in David's life to bring him to the place where he will finally be king of Israel. He is the Lord's anointed. In another, we see a man's heart that is fully given to its passions. David will make it to the place that God has set him aside for. If you remember in our very first study in 1 Samuel 16... This young shepherd boy was was visited by Samuel the prophet and God anointed him. God put his spirit upon him to set him apart to be Israel's next king. And then for the rest of 1 Samuel, which is like 14 years of David's life, David is helping the current King Saul and then running from King Saul. He runs to the caves. He runs out of the country. He finds himself in places that you would think if he's the Lord's anointed, he wouldn't be in such trouble for so long. And yet David is a man on the run. But when David makes it to the throne, he will do a remarkable job in his profession. Psalm 78 says this, he also chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds, from the care of the ewes with suckling lambs. He brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people and Israel, his inheritance. So he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them with his skillful hands. So if you look at that verse. The psalmist says David shepherded God's people with the integrity of his heart and he guided them with his skillful hands. The integrity of his heart, a man that was after God's own heart, a man that that loved God and had a heart for God. And with the skillfulness of not just his hands, but with the work of his life, he was able to guide Israel and, and really, when he ascended to the throne, Israel prospered nationally. Its borders grew large beyond what they had been, ever been. He had settled the worship because through the period of the judges and the first part of 1 Samuel, Israel was full of all of these idolatrous altars and they would f- follow the false gods. David cleaned all of that out and he focused the hearts of the nation of Israel on the worship of the Lord. But this didn't happen overnight. David's skillful leadership. 2 Samuel 5, 5 says, At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. 
And what we're going to look at this morning in this passage in 2 Samuel chapters 1 through 5 is the fact that when David came to the throne, he came to it partially at first. For the first two years of his leadership, he was only king of Judah. There was another king in Israel, and we'll talk about that in a minute. And then once he ascends to the full throne of Israel, as as he's able to unify the country, he will reign in one place for seven years, seven and a half years, really. And then for the remaining 33 years of his life, he'll be in Jerusalem. Because for the first seven and a half years of his reign, Jerusalem is under a foreign power. Israel is not in control of it. David was around 30 years old when he ascended to the throne. He spent 12 to 14 years of his life running from, the, from King Saul. And by the time King Saul died, and that's the last chapter of 1 Samuel. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Samuel 31 and just kind of glance over it. Uh, Saul died a strange death. If you remember the last time we looked at David's life, David went to the south and God protected him because David was on his way to the north to fight with the foreign nations against Saul. And God providentially protected David and sent him back to the south. Saul is fighting this battle. And during the battle, remember the the day before the battle, Saul entreated a spiritus, a witch, And God, through that medium, told him, you're going to die the next day. And as they're out for battle, Saul sees that it's a losing effort. And he does not want to die at the hands of the Philistines. So what does Saul do in 1 Samuel 31? We read in verse 4, Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and pierce me through it. He's asking his own armor bearer to kill him. And he's... He, he makes the request because he says, otherwise these uncircumcised will come and pierce me and make sport of me. But his armor bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. So Saul took his sword and fell on it. This mighty king falls on his own sword and takes his life. So Saul is dead. The the perceived hurdle, the conflict, from Saul's perspective, this madman that was tormented by an evil spirit, this enemy of David is out of the picture. But as David is on his way to the throne, as we're going to see in these chapters, You see some actions that reveal some subtle missteps that will come back to trouble him and will trouble his family. Listen, while David is the Lord's anointed, you can't help but learn from his life and hopefully apply it to your own life. That sin often carries with it tragic consequences. Listen, I know you know this like here because I know these things here. But just again, may we come to the word of God and watch these people who were not perfect, 
May we, as we watch these people learn from their lives and consider the great tragic consequences that take place when people would rather follow their own passions than to believe the Lord God. And this is a man that is after God's own heart. He's far from perfect. And in these missteps, he's not going to see immediate trouble come upon him just like that. It's going to take time. And it's going to be over time that these troubles are going to mount up. Our sin not only has the ability to affect our lives personally, but also those around us. And while we can always find forgiveness for our sins in the cross of Jesus, we also need to remember that sin sometimes leaves a tragic reminder in the changes that take place due to its destructiveness. And so on one hand, We are always forgiven at the cross of Jesus. And in the other, while we live in this fallen world, the choices that we make that fall short of the glory of God can often change the trajectory and course of people's lives around us. It doesn't just all go away when we go to the cross and ask for forgiveness. Sometimes there's great trouble that comes with it. Now, as I said earlier, David is a man that has a heart for God. I would say it this way. David is a man that had great passion. He was a passionate man. Whatever David did, he was all in. He was all in. He was not just 100% in. He was 110% in. And you can't be 110% in because you can only be 100% in. But David is like, I'm going to run through the wall for the sake of the glory of God. You ever know someone like that? That is passionate about something? They're excited. They're on fire. They're willing to talk about whatever they're passionate about at any moment. They're wholly invested in what they're doing. And we can often do that with our hobbies, the things that we enjoy. And that's what the danger is if you're wholly passionate about your hobbies, because it can really distract you from the responsibilities that you have. But I remember a couple years ago during COVID, during the shutdown, I was all in on my golf game. I thought about golf all the time. Elders, I'm sorry, but I thought about golf a lot. Due to not being able to be around people a lot, it was perfect. I could go out to the golf course and and what? Social distance. It was wonderful. I could go out and play a round of golf after work and be home uh, in time while the sun is still shining and, and spend time with my family. I would watch YouTube videos on how to swing the golf club how to get better. I would even practice in the youth room. You know, high ceilings. I didn't hit any balls, but I would swing. I had my golf clubs in the car during lunch. I'd bring them in there and I'd be taking dry swings. If you ask Angela and the kids, I would walk around the house like this, like all the time. It was, it was exciting. It was passionate. I was like all in. I never played better for one month. And then it all went downhill. I can't, I I think I played golf one time last fall and that was it in the last year. 
And when it went downhill, my passions decreased. But David was all in. As a musician, he wrote songs to God and he played his harp skillfully. As a shepherd, he never backed down in protecting his sheep. I mean, he fought off a lion and a bear. As a warrior, he defeated a nine feet, nine inch giant. As a friend, he was loyal in the midst of great adversity. As a man who believed God, he was faithful to lift up the name of the Lord and contend for his glory. And as a man, he pursued the passions of his flesh. And he fathered a large family with many wives and concubines. And so David, David is viewed as a person like us, not perfect, but seeking God and along the way, revealing he is a man in need of great grace. So what I'd like to do this morning is highlight some of the areas of David's life in the summary of uh, 2 Samuel 1 through 5 that provide an example and testimony for us. When David believed God, wow, what blessing came. When he followed his flesh, trouble came with it. And so I pray that we can learn from David's missteps. The reality is that while David was a man after God's own heart and led well for many years, he will die a man with a broken heart and his family is shattered. I believe David lived with great remorse at the end of his life for his past transgressions. And while we see the missteps of his life, let us also see what God provides for us now. May we learn as we live the lives God wants us to live and walk faithfully with him. So turn to 2 Samuel chapter 1. We're not going to read every verse. I'm just going to summarize the text. You can go back and read it on your own. 1 Samuel 1 is the news of David finding out that Saul is dead. Remember, Saul or David was fighting the Amalekites. It says in verse 1, he slaughtered the Amalekites. David is in the south of Israel. Saul was in the north. News gets back that King Saul had died. What happened when David found out? Well, this is the passionate response of a man that feels all the feelings. He tore his clothing. He was broken. David grieved for Saul. How would you feel if your enemy that was out chasing after you, wanting to kill you, died? I don't know if I would be grieving over that. At best, I would be like, whew, that's over. But I might be throwing a little party. That's not David. Another thing, though, Saul didn't just die by himself. 1 Samuel 31 says who was with him when he died. Jonathan. Remember Jonathan, Saul's son. They're the loyal friends that they were. They made covenants to each other. They protected each other. David lost his friend, his loyal friend. But what happens in 2 Samuel chapter 1 is that an Amalekite comes to King David with 
the crown and a bracelet of Saul. He was there at the battle. And he's, he tells David what happens. Saul's dead. He's gone. Here's the proof. Here's his stuff. And we read in 2 Samuel, in verses 8 through 10, he said to me, who are you? And I answered him, I am an Amalekite. Then he said to me, please stand beside me and kill me. He's speaking, and this is what Saul said, for agony has seized me because my life still lingers in me. So I stood beside him and killed him because I knew that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown, which was on his head and the bracelet, which is on his arm. And I brought them here to my Lord. Small, small letter L, right? Not Lord of heaven, but Lord as David is the one in charge. Now, this Amalekite goes to David and says, I was the one that finished Saul off. There's a problem with that, though, right? Because first Samuel 31 says that Saul fell on his own sword after his armor bearer went and kill him. So who's right and who's wrong? I believe the text in 1 Samuel 31 is correct. 2 Samuel chapter 1 is this Amalekite trying to gain favor, thinking this is the guy that was always chasing after you. I'm going to tell him and show him the proof that I ended Saul's life. And he might be accepted and rewarded and given great honor. There's a problem with that because in David's passion for the Lord's Lord's anointed, right? Because that's how he kind of finishes up this section of scripture. He says to this man in his distress, why did you raise a hand to the Lord's anointed? If you're telling me you killed the king, why did you kill the king? And what does David do? He kills the man. And then David in his heartache finishes with a great song. My, my Bible gives it the title, uh, David's Dirge for Saul and Jonathan. This sad song. Funeral song. So David's heart is broken. He remembers Saul and Jonathan in this song that he sings, this skillful musician. And so now the hurdle is out of place. We come to chapter two. And and as we look at chapters two, three, and four, you need to know some of the main players because we're not going to read much of the text. And you need to understand who these people are, what relation they have with each other. First is Abner. Abner is Saul's general. All throughout 1 Samuel, Abner's the one that is leading Saul's armies and all of those things. So Abner plays a big part in what's happening here. There's another guy, Ishbosheth. Ishbosheth is Saul's son. Ishbosheth will become king of Israel for a period of time. Then we have Joab. Joab is on David's side. He, he becomes David's commander. But he is a part of David's loyal ragtag army that, that followed him out of Israel when David was running. And he stayed by David's side. And he plays a big part in what's happening in, this, in these chapters. But what you need to understand in chapters 2, 3, and 4 is that Israel is at unrest. The king is dead. And there's a civil war that breaks out. And, and as I was reading these passages, I'm thinking, these are God's people. Like the 12 tribes that belong to Jacob, that belong to Abraham. And due to the unsettled nature of what's going on in their lives, 
right? Because when there's no true leadership, people scatter and they run and they posture and they find themselves in camps. There's no one leading them. And they had forgotten that God was meant to lead them. And so they're at war. And so David is made king in Judah. In verse 1, we see that the Lord led him. Then it came about afterwards that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to one of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. Well, that's a positive thing. God is at time. God says, Yes, it's time. He goes up to Judah. Where shall I go up? And he says to Hebron. Hebron was about 20 miles southwest of Jerusalem. It was in the southern part. But it was also, Hebron was the highest city in Judah. And so from a tactical advantage, it's a city that is set up higher and can oversee the the lands around them. So David goes. We see in verse 5, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed of the Lord. Why? Because they were the ones that gathered Saul's body when he died and they buried him properly. And David honored them for taking care of the king's body. And so we see the men who buried Saul are blessed. In Israel, Saul's commander makes Ishbosheth in chapter 2 the king, and he's king for two years. David's in Hebron for seven and a half years, as verse 11 indicates. And in verses 12 through 32, there's this civil war that breaks out between Ishbosheth's men and David's men. God's people are divided. The civil war led to unrest due to leaders on both sides posturing for position. And it doesn't break out as a full-out war. They come together, and they come to this valley, and as they're at this valley overlooking each other, they they decide to have like hand-to-hand combat, one against one, winner-takes-all kind of thing. Abner, the commander of Saul's armies is running for his life after this hand-to-hand combat. Joab and some others, his brothers, are chasing after him. Why? Because they want to, they want to knock him off. You knock off the head, you cut the head, right? You can overtake the rest. There's a man, Asahel, pursued Abner. He was known to be flight of foot. He was known to be fast and took what he says that he was really fast. He chases after Abner. Abner pleads with him. Let me go. Let me go. Let me go. And then Abner kills him. So Abner kills him. The rest of the brothers go off. What happens, though, and this is interesting, if you look at the end of chapter 2, some people join Abner. Some people join the northern part of Israel, the kingdom of Ishbosheth. It's the Benjamites. Now, Saul was a Benjamite. 
But these are the people that were right next to Judah. The Benjamites join Abner's men. And David struck down Benjamin and Abner's men, and we read that 360 men died. And so this war is, there's unsettledness, right? This would be front page news in Jerusalem, or well, in Israel. And Jerusalem isn't a city yet. It would be front page. Everyone, if they had cell phones back then, would be checking their live feed, what's going on in Israel today. And it would be like, this guy's chasing this guy. This person died after this thing. And there's just this great unsettledness. In chapter three, we begin to read in verse one, there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And what's interesting is the narrator tells us that as David's house grew stronger and stronger, Saul's house grew weaker and weaker. And this is how it grew weaker. This is what chapter 3 tells us. Remember Abner, the commander of Saul's armies, he's now the commander of Ishbosheth's army. Ishbosheth accuses Abner of sleeping with one of his father's concubines, which that's a big no no. You don't do that. And Abner's like, what are you talking about? I didn't do that thing that is detestable. And Abner grows very angry that this king would accuse him of such a terrible act. And so what does Abner say? He says, I will do everything humanly possible to help David secure the throne in Israel. He changes sides. He crosses the lines. Chapter 3 tells us that, that Abner crosses the lines. And as he crosses the lines, he swore an allegiance to help David due to the accusation. Abner goes and reaches out to David, promises to help. He says, I'm going to help you get what you want due to me being highly accused and offended by those accusations. But there's two things that I want you to see in chapter 3. In verses 2 through 5, just kind of inserted into this while David is in Hebron, we read that David had a bunch of sons that were born to some of the different women that he was married to. And then in chapter 3, verse 13, to seal the arrangement... David hears the news from Abner. What does he say? He says, good, I will make a covenant with you, but I demand one thing of you. This is what David wants from Abner. You shall not see my face unless you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter. Remember who Michael is? That's Saul's daughter that David won in battle, her hand in marriage. His first wife. And like for 14 years, he hasn't been married to her. David has all of these children with all of these other wives as verses two through five indicate. And as a sign of the covenant, he says, I want Michael back. Here's the problem. I mean, one of the problems, right? One of the problems with this is that Michael is married again. And she has a husband. Ishbosheth, verse 15, sent and took her from her husband. Abner arranged all this. Her husband is Paltiel, the son of Laish. But her husband went with her, weeping as he went. 
Can you imagine the heartache this man had as he's watching his wife being let out? And like, he's like, what is going on? Why do you want my wife? Then Abner said to him, go return. So he returned. Husband just kind of had to walk back home without his family. Abner and David are at peace. They're at peace. The deal is sealed. There's a problem, though. Joab wasn't around when all of these arrangements were made. Joab had lost Asahel, who Abner killed. Joab shows up. Abner's there. He's like, what is going on? So what does he do? He pulls Abner to the side. Right? He's like, hey, I need to talk to you over here. And in the dark... He kills him. And as he kills him, David finds out in verses 31 and following, and he mourns greatly over the death of Abner. In fact, there is such tension in the northern kingdoms and in Judah that David doesn't want to even be associated with the actions of Joab. And he stands far away And he's like, he did that on his own. I had nothing to do with that. He mourns. He he calls for a funeral for Abner. He fasts. I mean, he genuinely wants to distance himself because if he is to assume the throne, he can't be on the side of the person that killed the man that brokered the deal to bring the people together. All sorts of craziness. Like this is a soap opera. Like, this is one of those cliffhanger, like, weekly movie things. Like, come back the next week to find out the next strange thing that is going to happen. And so chapter 4, chapter 4 begins with Ishbosheth, Saul's son, being murdered, assassinated. He was laying in his bed at night. And while he was sleeping, he was killed and his head was cut off. Verse 7 says, They took his head and traveled by the way of the Arabah all night. Then they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. That's okay. I guess that's what you do back then, but that would be a strange thing. Behold, the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life, right? These people are thinking, hey, we're going to get rid of this guy. He'll be another enemy that is gone for David. Thus, the Lord has given my Lord, the king, vengeance this day on Saul and his descendants. David answered Rechab and Banah, his brothers, sons of Rimmon, the Berothite, and said to them, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all distress. When one told me, saying, behold, Saul is dead and thought he was bringing good news. I seized him and killed him in Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed? Shall I not require his blood from your hand and destroy you from the earth? And so he's like, hey, I killed that guy for that news. What do you think I'm going to do to you? And this is what he does. Verse 12, then David commanded the young men and they killed them and cut off their hands and feet and hung them upside down in the pole in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the grave of Abner in Hebron. 
Whew. It's a good thing we're reading the story right now, but and not right before bedtime. Chapter 5. There's no leader in Israel. All the tribes come to David. They're like, David, it's time for you to be king. We know that you're God's anointed. He unifies Israel from Hebron for seven years. In chapter 5, we see that they go up to Jerusalem and they wage war against the Jebusites. They drive the Jebusites out of Jerusalem. They take over Jerusalem and it is named the city of David. It will be the city that David reigns from. And there's a whole lot of theological and historical context to the importance of Jerusalem going back to the days of Genesis. So David is now king. Foreign kings send messengers with lots of goods and they're like, David, you got this city now. You need a house. And they build him a house, a grand palace from the cedar trees. There were carpenters and stonemasons and they built a house for David, as verse 11 says. And David realized that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. And I wish it ended there. I wish it ended there in David's life for what happened. But look at verses 13 and following. Meanwhile, David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron and more sons and daughters were born to David. Now, these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. Shuma, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Jephiah, Elishama, Eliada, and Eliphalet. Boy, try saying those five times fast. So those are just more children from more wives and concubines. First Chronicles says that he had many wives and concubines. Now, listen, you might be able to say, well, the historical part of this is that kings would also have large families because they're kings and they want to have royal lines and all those things. But the narrator of Second Samuel makes a point all throughout Second Samuel that David's lack of self-control and controlling his passions and growing a large family is going to be a huge hurdle for him. In fact, one of the sons that we read about that is born in Hebron in chapter 3, um, this is the, the son that is born from Abigail. His name is Absalom. If you've ever read Second Samuel and you know anything about church, I mean, uh, Israel's history, you know that Absalom is going to play a huge part in David's life as his son. And we'll talk a little bit about that later in the coming weeks. But let me just give you the very short story. Absalom wants to be king and David runs for his life out of Jerusalem because his son wants to kill him. Craziness. Craziness. There's a great tension that exists in these opening chapters. You see the narrator of 2 Samuel highlighting David's desire to do the right thing. Don't raise a hand to the Lord's anointed. Off with your head. He seeks the Lord. Lord, is it time to go? The Lord says it's time to go. He goes. 
David wants to do the right thing in leading Israel. He wants to avenge wrongs, distance himself from trouble. He waits on the Lord and inquires how to move forward. And yet he took more wives and more concubines. He had a lot of children. I I think one uh, Chuck Swindoll wrote in this period of David's life, he adds up at least 21 children that we know of that are born of David in this time in his life. Now, one of the obvious outcomes of having a, a bunch of wives and a ton of children is that you are prone to show favoritism. David would take sides. His children would jockey for position. It's all the natural outcome of these decisions, and it will lead to the breakdown of his family. We will look at that in detail in the coming weeks. But as you can see, lots of good was happening in David's life, and yet everything was not all as it should be. Kind of like seeing something and say, man, that just doesn't seem right. It's like the cracks or the fissures in the foundation that are, that are small at first. And you're like, well, you know, it looks like it, it, it's a problem. But, you know, everything seems to be strong and sturdy. And then over time, right, due to weather changes and water and all that kind of stuff, the cracks get bigger and bigger and bigger. And once the foundation is broke, the house falls down. David lost control of his family. He pursued his passions. It's going to get worse. Like there's chapters devoted towards David's passion, following his passions and being a man after his own flesh and the sin with Bathsheba. And there are Psalms that are written over the brokenness of his heart and the trouble that comes from it. Whatever David did, he did with his whole heart. And so as we look at his life, at least today, I want to impress upon you what we talked about last week from Deuteronomy 6, at least through the lens of David's life. And it's this, there is no greater heritage that you can leave than a godly family. It's not how well you lead in your business, how bright you stand in the community, how much you can get done in the world around you. If you're not doing it at home, it's a problem. That's your first responsibility. You might be a good manager of resources and you might think I can lead, leave this to the next generation to do a lot of good for our community and church. But if you are not pouring into your family, your name and legacy will be short lived. Listen, there are no guarantees that if you do everything right in your home, if you pour into your children, that they're going to walk in godliness. But if you are a poor example at home, there is a greater chance they will not follow God. I believe that is why Paul told Timothy and Titus when he's talking about church leadership, elders and deacons in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus chapter 1, that one of the main characteristics that you look at when you look for men that are be, to be set apart for the leadership of the local church is that they manage their household well. It's the same characteristic for, for both roles and offices. So there's no greater heritage you can leave than a godly family. The second thing is that the fractures in life don't all happen overnight. It doesn't happen overnight. When David's making these choices, growing his family, he's probably, he's, he's not even thinking, what is the potential problems down the road? But when you are aware of the sin in your life, acknowledge and confess it. And find the grace that God gives through the cross of Jesus. 
One of the greatest gifts that God gives us is his Holy Spirit. If you are born again, God's Spirit dwells inside of you. If you want to, you can turn to Galatians 5. We're going to look at a couple verses in Galatians 5 in the next couple minutes. But one of the greatest gifts that you have, one of the greatest resources that you have as a believer is that God's Spirit lives inside of you. He doesn't just come upon you for a portion of time and then leave and go to someone else for a portion of time and move on to another portion or another person for another portion. God's spirit, God himself resides in every born again, true believer in Jesus Christ. And what does Paul say in Galatians 5? Galatians 5.16, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. And so there's a call and a command to walk by the Spirit, to walk in step with the Holy Spirit living inside of you. What does that mean? Well, to walk by the Spirit means that those who are born again understand and know that because of Jesus... We are dead to the old life. That's what verse 24 of Galatians 5 says. Now, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That when we believe in Jesus Christ, what are we acknowledging at the foot of the cross? We acknowledge at the foot of the cross, we make a mess of our lives. And apart from the grace of God and coming to Jesus coming to save us, we're dead in our sins and trespasses. But by faith in Christ, we are crucified. And that's Paul's point in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave, gave himself up for me. We're crucified. We're dead. The old self, the old life, the power of sin... Like if you had an extension cord plugged into the wall and on the other side of that wall was the generator of sin and our lives were plugged into that. The moment that we believe in Jesus, Jesus takes these big shears and cuts the power for sin in our life. And we are no longer under sin's control. And you might say, Pastor, that sounds great, but I still sin. Right. That's what Paul says in Romans 7 about the crazy nature of the new life we have in Christ in this old flesh body that is worn out by sin. There's a, there's a fight going on. But theologically, Paul says, because we have the Spirit, there might be a fight going on, but the Spirit of God is going to win every time. And so we need to tap into the power that God gives us through His Spirit. As such, the Holy Spirit is able to produce fruit in our lives. That's what Paul says in Galatians 5. That fruit cannot happen on our own. We can't do these things apart from God. Look at verses 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. You want to know how you can overcome sin in your life? Yield yourself to the power of the Holy Spirit in your life and walk with him. Know that you are rendered dead in your sins. Like you're a new person. Second Corinthians five, right? That was the Easter sermon. 
You're a new creation in Jesus Christ. And you have God's spirit inside of you. And you don't have to give in to the pleasures of your flesh. Through God's spirit, you can exercise self-control. David sure could have used self-control in his life. And so can we. Church, remember, in Jesus and only in him, we're dead to sin. Not only are we dead, but we are alive to the spirit. And the direct result of trusting in Jesus is that we can overcome the desires of our flesh and please God with our lives. With the spirits indwelling and empowering, God is able to write a new story in our lives. One that is full of purpose and leaves an eternal legacy. And let's trust him to do just that. Let's pray.